do you know that this book we call the Bible is actually the Word of God? How do you know it is all the Word of God, all that there is? How do you know, since it is written by human beings, that those human beings did not make a mistake? I want to begin by one scripture over in the last part of Deuteronomy. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the very last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verse 5. Now, we know that these are the first five books of the Bible that are called the books of Moses, the law of Moses. Some people call it the Torah or the Pentateuch in the Greek. This is Moses apparently writing, quote, So Moses, the servant of the Eternal, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Eternal. Now, wait just a minute. Did Moses write that statement? There's only one possible way he could have. He either anticipated his death, and he wrote about it in advance, or else, in some way or another, he wrote it after he was dead, which sounds preposterous because it plainly states that he died, and he was not resurrected then, and his body has never been found. Or there's a third possibility. Maybe some other human being wrote that part of the book of Deuteronomy. Is that a possibility? Did some other human being write it? And if so, who is this interloper? And did he actually have the authorization to write that statement? And is that statement inspired or is only what Moses wrote inspired? Now, when you look into the Bible, especially, let's go back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth. And here are 11 documents, as they point out in some of the Bible handbooks, Halley's, Angus, and others, that comprise the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And up until the twelfth chapter, you go through about 2,000 years by the time of the Exodus, certainly, the beginning of the book of Exodus, about 2,000 years or one-third of all time from the time of the creation of Adam until now, in only a few chapters of the Bible. In the first six chapters, you go through approximately 1,000 plus years, or about one-sixth of all time until now. Yet you're given just little keyhole glimpses of what might have gone on back then. Did Moses write all of this? And if he did, did he use other records, or was he just sitting along by the campfire there one night, and had his writing tools out, or maybe somebody else was helping him, like Aaron or one of the Levites, and he was saying, now, I remember the way it was, and then God just put it into his mind, and was he repeating a campfire story that had been repeated for over 1,500 years, and how grotesquely exaggerated can something get in 10 or 20 years? Well, what can happen in the course of 1,500 years as one human being tells somebody a story? And then he tells his son the story, and he tells somebody else the story. Is that the way God was going to preserve his word? Was it from simply recollection? Was it like mythology, in a sense, of the tales that were told in the family, from grandparent to grandson and on down? Or was there some other method that was used? Now, many years ago, and before the turn of the last century, higher criticism said that the first five books of the Bible could not really be written by Moses, because everybody knows that there was no writing by the time of Moses, that writing was not even known until long after Moses. And then in 1887, an Egyptian woman found some clay tablets partially sticking out of the sand about halfway between a city called Memphis and Thebes called Tel El Amarna. And those clay tablets 
had strange little marks on them. It looked like somebody had taken a little wedge, almost like a ten-penny nail, and had made all sorts of little marks in neat rows. She didn't know what in the world they were, but they were given to some of the officials at the Cairo Museum, the university or somewhere. Some of the Europeans, Germans, and others began to go over that. They began to realize that they had a remarkable find, that here in these clay tablets, of which there were many, called the Tel El Amarna tablets, which are right now in the museums, was, was translated from Babylonian cuneiform. Cuneiform was use of a wedge, a little steel wedge or an iron wedge on a clay tablet. And it was actually like an abbreviated form of writing because cuneiform was a much more practical form of writing than even our English. It was much more rapid. And by just taking it and pressing the heel or the toe of it in all sorts of different ways, a person could go along and follow along almost as rapidly as shorthand. Babylonian cuneiform spelled C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M. When they translated it, they found it was official correspondence between the Egyptian governors of Palestine and their ruler, who was King Amenophis IV, probably about 1,380 years before Jesus Christ. Contemporary to the time of Moses, and with incidents relating back prior to the book of Moses, and with even corroborative stories that went hand in hand with some of the events during the day of Joshua. So that was quite an interesting find. You can look in the Bible handbooks, Bible dictionaries, and read about the Tel El Amarna tablets and how that battered down one of the arguments of some of the so-called higher critics who claimed the first five books of the Bible couldn't have been written by Moses because nobody knew how to write by the time of Moses. Now this proved that there was a formal kind of writing that had been used by the Babylonian Empire long before the time of Moses. Well, that wasn't all that came to light. Eventually, there was a discovery of the Rosetta Stone, you may remember that one, which had three languages on it. It had ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics across the top, then it had a kind of a flowing script that was called Demotic, like a Sanskrit or an early Arab flowing script, and below it, of all things, it had Greek. Neither the hieroglyphics nor the Demotic were known. Until that time, no one had the faintest idea what all of these heads and figures and ghosts and people and birds and jackals and men's with ja men with jackals or birds' heads with these keys in their hands standing around on the tombs of the Pharaoh or Cleopatra's needle, the obelisks in the public squares of Rome. They didn't know what they meant. But here, fortuitously, was Greek. Some ancient person had put all three languages on the same tablet. Now, I've seen that tablet. My wife has seen it. We've been to the Louvre. We've been to the British Museum, the Vatican Museum, and the museum in Cairo, and other large museums of the world. And here are some of those ancient writings contained. You've heard of the Code of Hammurabi. I've also seen that. It's a black, beautifully polished marble, almost like an obelisk, and almost perfectly round. It was set up at the border of the nation. Hammurabi may be contemporaneous with Amraphel, mentioned in the first few chapters of the Bible when Abraham talks about the kings down there at Sidim and so on and how he went to rescue Lot and Catalomer and Amraphel are mentioned and title king of nations. Many people identify, many of the scholars do, Hammurabi with Amraphel. So that pushes the date of writing way, way back, long prior to Moses, even prior to the time of Abraham in the Bible. Other pre-Mosaic writings have come to light, such as the Chaldean legends, clay tablets found by Layard in Nineveh, in Gilgamesh, and other Babylonian cities. Now, a series of those clay tablets in cuneiform give the Babylonian version of creation. 
And also remember that there is no civilization in the world that anyone knows of that is an actual civilization, a developed civilization like the Mayas or the Incas or the Aztecs or the Babylonians or the Sumerians or the Hittites who do not have a universal flood theory. And when you read of their flood theories, especially in the Gilgamesh tablets, you have an account of the Babylonian version of creation and of the flood. They talk about mankind being encased in an egg that floated on great waters and then finally came to a place where it landed. Or one race might have had the story of people just surviving hanging to a log or someone else in a great canoe or someone else in a great boat of some sort. But all around the world, even pagan so-called Indian civilizations in the Western Hemisphere had a Noatian flood or a deluge theory. In this Chaldean legend, it says, quote, Belus, that was their god, came out and cut a woman asunder, and one half of her was used to form the earth, and the other half the heavens. It also contains the story of Cain and Abel and the story of the flood. But now listen to what the critics did. Prior to the discovery of some of these ancient hieroglyphics, the Telenomarna tablets and others, they said the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, can't be Moses' writing because there was no writing invented by them. Now, by the early 1900s, they had to begin to agree, well, writing had been known for centuries before then. So surely, Moses could have written the Pentateuch after all. But, even if he did, now that we've discovered these ancient pagan writings, then I know what happened, some bright scholar said one day, Moses must have borrowed all of his stories from these ancient pagan writings. So you can't win, you see, with higher criticism. They've made up their minds it cannot be God's word, and so, of course, they're going to insist that Moses borrowed it from those earlier civilizations, now that they've discovered writing was in vogue long before that time. How can you know God exists? Well, I've been through many, many programs and, of course, written the articles in the booklet on seven proofs God exists. I'm going to go to Romans, the first chapter, for a moment, refresh our memory with regard to that, because Romans, the first chapter, is a challenge to any atheist or skeptic as to whether or not you can prove the great God that put the sun and the entire universe out there really does exist. He said, beginning in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is, from those in whom is faith, to, from the faith of God. It takes faith mixed with faith to really see that revealed. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold back. The Greek word there is katabalo. The Greek word kata, K-A-T-A, means down in relation to place or time. It's the same word that is used for the veil in the 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about women's hair hanging down. And katabalo means to throw down, to cast down. It does not mean who hold the truth, meaning who believe the truth, or who receive and who contain the truth. It means who hold back the truth. Now, that's revealed by Bollinger's Companion Bible, by the Diaglot, by any, any other uh, good uh, Greek New Testament renderings, who hold back the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is evident to them, for God has shown it to them. Now, how has God shown creation to you? For the invisible things of him, 
God is invisible. He is a spirit. How do you know he exists? From the creation of the world, by the creation of the world, not from the creation as a point in time, but by looking at that which is created, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, even pagans, are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, and so on, and it shows that they made him like, verse 23, to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed creatures, and living and creeping things, four-footed beasts and creeping things. We know that creation requires a creator, and there just is no other explanation. Whether you want to look at the properties of mineralogy, at nuclear fission or fusion, at any of the insect species, at the cleavage properties of minerals themselves, at the laws of thermodynamics, at the entirety of this earth, at the way it operates, the solar system, the universe, there is no other theory. I've gone over and over and over it, taught college classes on it, written articles on it, booklets on it, our awesome universe, etc., gone through all the theories for the origin of the universe. You know what they are, the oscillating universe, the constant state or the solid state theory, and of course the Big Bang theory. In a college-level textbook, it says, chapter 1, page 1, line 1, in the beginning was the hydrogen atom. Now, in the textbook that I use, which is man's handbook about God that tells us what God is like, what is his great purpose he is working out here below, what we are all about, why we are here and where we are going, and I call it a college-level textbook because certainly most collegian-level scholars cannot understand it. It seems to be quite a very deep and quite a very interesting book to most people and almost beyond the understanding of most people, the Bible. It starts out the same way. In the beginning, God created, bara is the Hebrew word, the heavens and the earth. Now, the scribes, the scholars, rather, lift up their voices in alarm, and they say, that's not possible. You have to have a starting point. How can you say, in the beginning, God? Next question, who created God? Where did God come from? But they don't tell you if you go to the college classroom to learn about geology or microbiology or any of the studies that relate to evolution. In the beginning was the hydrogen atom. Where did you get the hydrogen atom? Does your mind conceive of a hydrogen atom, one atom, whatever an atom, one atom is so big, one giant hydrogen atom, so big that it is as big as or bigger than the entirety of the universe? That's just as difficult for my mind to encompass as it is to encompass the concept in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, because I want to know where did you get the hydrogen atom? Where did it come from? It exploded, they say. Oh, really? What caused it to explode? Why didn't it implode and simply disappear? Why was it there in the first place? If it exploded within a very few paragraphs in the average textbook on that subject in geology, they will have you talking about how the earth gradually cooled. They'll introduce the principle of isostasy and the relationship of the mountain masses to the crust beneath and magma and how the continents might gradually flow, as it were, or skid around on a, an actually fluid core of the earth. And they will talk about as it gradually cooled. Now, in a very short period of time, from about one or two pages of most textbooks, they, they quit talking about hypotheses, maybe, possibly, or perhaps, and now they say, as it cooled, thus and such happened. 
then they will show you how life was supposed to have evolved. And they talk about green soup, or brown seaweed, or scum, or cracks in rocks. There's the extreme cold theory, and scientists who believe it, that life began under conditions of extreme cold. Then there are the conditions of extreme heat, and there are those who believe that. There are those who believe that a chance strike of lightning hit an amenic, or I should say, a methane ammonic pool of acid of some sort, and that caused the first little germs to begin to become alive of some, some way or another. They're, they're not quite sure, but they believe that maybe bacteria were the first form of life, and then they gradually became little plants, and how in the world that did, well, it isn't clear. But some of the studies in the evolutionary theory are very, very interesting. Mankind has generally used every artifice imaginable to get around facing up to the fact that the word of God is going to judge him, that it came from a great God Almighty in the heaven above, that he means what he says, that this word is a book that we are supposed to tremble before. This attitude that says, the only way I will agree that anything is true in the Old Testament is if it is repeated in the New Testament. And therefore, if it isn't repeated, it's got to be invalid. But you know, they're just scratching the surface of the objections that people could raise about the authenticity of the text and its original manuscripts, none of which are available to us. Absolutely not one single original manuscript is available. Do you know what the oldest manuscript available to mankind is? It dates back to a little before Jesus Christ. And it's called the Septuagint. And that is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. There is no original manuscript available written by the hand of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There is no original letter available written by the Apostle Paul. There is no original letter of James, Peter, or John. There is nothing that has been written by the hand, so far as we know, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, if you're going to argue on this business of holy days based upon some obscure statement in Colossians or about the law of commandments contained in ordinances and go back when we used to teach that in freshman Bible and then again in year after year of Ambassador College, take notes on it, ask labyrinthal test questions on it, wade through it, let no man judge you, but the church of God, show what the carnal ordinance are, ordinances are imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. It was a schoolmaster and so on. Scripture after scripture, there are going to be tens of thousands of people resurrected in the first resurrection as well as in the second resurrection and inducted into the kingdom of God who never heard about some of the laws that we are observing that we have discovered today. You show me where Abraham ever kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Show me where Isaac or Jacob or the children of Israel prior to the time of Egypt, all of those that lived and died, of those family members, and I'll show you that there was a series of patriarchs who lived from the time of Seth, who replaced Abel once he was murdered, right on down to Noah and beyond him, who were men of God, who were really the one group of people, each one with his successor, who were required of God to keep intact the word of God, which I believe was put down to writing even by Adam himself. I believe that, but I can't prove it. But I think it's logical, and I think there is logical proof for it. Back then, before there was a written word of God, there were only two ways by which a man could know, and that was by oral 
interpretation or deposition or communication from God or via a vehicle of speech from an angel or just a matter of conscience. You might be amazed to go back and find how many strange men made up a part of the Bible. Did you know that Cyrus is quoted in the Bible in the book of Ezra as talking about the Most High God had shown him that he should send those people back and wrote the decree to go back and build the wall and the city of Jerusalem? Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar wrote one of the chapters of the book of Daniel? I, Nebuchadnezzar, talked about the Most High God and everything he said extolling and enlarging and magnifying God's glory is in the book of Daniel. Did you know that the eleventh chapter of Daniel is written by an archangel, Gabriel, who said, I am Gabriel, and he wrote that eleventh chapter. It's all first-person quotation from an archangel. What about King Lemuel? In the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, you ever read what he said? The Bible, a lot of people look upon today in the Western and the Southwestern American Bible Belt, is kind of a, a modern book that we just go endlessly arguing over. Now we read in and we find in and let us turn to. But very few of these people seem to have the real overview about how we got our Bible, where it came from, who wrote it, did anyone ever amend it, was there ever any proofreading done, were there any interlinear or, let's say, footnotes added to it, any marginal addenda that were added. Now how could that ever have been? Wouldn't that be cheating in some way? All right, let's get back to the subject I asked in the beginning. In Deuteronomy, the last chapter in that fifth verse, how in the world could Moses have written that? Well, the answer is he didn't. I believe Ezra did many years later. I don't know as I can prove it. Scholars may believe the same thing, but we'll get toward the question a little later on as to whether or not that was authorized for Ezra to do that. And if Ezra did that, could it actually have been inspired? Let's turn to Exodus, the 17th chapter, and verse 14. Exodus 17 and verse 14 is the first place in the entire Bible where writing is ever mentioned. It said in verse 14, this was when they had to put the stone under Moses for him to sit on, and then they held up his arms standing on each side all day long because the Amalekites were about to prevail. But then it said, all day long until the going down of the sun, Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So the Eternal said unto Moses, write this, for a memorial in a book. Now, this is the first time where the word writing is used, although actually by, if you want to go to, it's only because it's in Exodus, if you go to Deuteronomy, as we're going to do, we will see that writing is really mentioned first back with the giving of the Ten Commandments because God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own figure, finger. rather. The Eternal said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Over in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 9, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 9, we know that in Deuteronomy 5th chapter it said that God had written all of these words with his own finger. And this is where the Ten Commandments are repeated. Deuteronomy 5 of the Ten Commandments. Now, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 9, and you shall write them, that is these laws, you shall bind them up as a sign, it said in verse 8, upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the posts of your house. Now, they built their homes with pillars, probably of stone, or like we would make out of mud brick, and then plastered them inside. So here, in a very prominent place, 
like at the entry or right inside in a corner or a prominent place right out in the middle of the room, would be the laws of God. The Code of Hammurabi was set up at the border. It's the only one that has been, so far as we know, of that type and of that very fine finish that has been uh, restored, or not restored, but at least has been preserved and is in a museum today. But there must have been many other such codes that were set up at the borders between nations. You'll find that sometimes between nations today, at least some reference to law, uh, some statement about customs or something like that from border to border. And it shall be when the eternal your God shall have brought you into the land which he swear unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and goodly cities, which you build not, and houses full of all good things, which you filled not, and wells dug, which you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you didn't plant, when you shall have eaten in full, then beware, lest thou forget the eternal, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. That statement says that oral tradition wasn't good enough, that father telling son wasn't good enough. He said, write this down on the posts of your house and on your gates, because eventually when they came into the land, they would forget. If we didn't have a Bible today, a written word of God, I wonder how well we would remember God's word. Now, when I think about the absolute chaos of so-called Christian belief, resulting from the fact that we do have the written word of God, I shudder to think of the kind of chaos we would have if we didn't have the written word of God. At least there is some place here for many different people of different religions and convictions to come to agree on various doctrines when they research the Bible, the New Testament. It's unbelievable to think what would happen if we had to depend upon oral tradition. Now, who did write the Pentateuch? It's obvious that Moses did. God told him to write it. Moses wrote the book of the law, Genesis, uh, Exodus 21, 22, and 23. That is made very, very clear. He certainly couldn't have written uh, Deuteronomy 5, not 5, but the last chapter and verse 5, where Moses wrote about his own death, which he couldn't have done. I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible again in Genesis, the first chapter, and notice some of these documents. The first chapter does not end with the first chapter. It actually ends with chapter 2 and verse 3, where you see the entirety of the creation week it doesn't conclude until the end of chapter 2 and verse 3, where the chapter break should be. You see a paragraph there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and it begins to recapitulate the first generations of the heavens and the earth. That's one document. Actually, there are 11 in all in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. That is called, in some literature, the creation hymn. And if you look at the original Hebrew in the Bullinger Bible, there's reason to believe it may have been sung. It may have been sung for the generations where people actually sang about the creation and repeated not only the words but the music along with it. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the eternal God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I believe that Adam may have had a hand in writing some of this, but certainly he couldn't have written the part from an eyewitness account before he, Adam, existed. Could he have written what happened to their own lives, what happened in the Garden of Eden, about God talking to a man? It's possible, I suppose. But when you look at the picture here of a woman falling asleep and God performing an operation, taping, taking a rib out of her body and creating a man, then you look at this absolutely perverted Babylonian Gilgamesh tablet episode of the creation 
where a person was divided into two pieces, and out of that part of creation occurred, you begin to see a sort of a relationship. Something to do with dissecting a human body and having to do with the time of creation. It never occurs to people that the further away you get from a center of knowledge and of information, the more degenerate and the more perverted the knowledge is likely to become. Now, right now, today, to give you an example of how people make mistakes in archaeology and in higher criticism when they're trying to determine whether or not the Bible may be true, may be valid or authorized or not, if a vast catastrophe of some sort, it would have to be an earthquake and a flood and several other things altogether, would come along and bury all of Sydney, Australia, and a portion of the outback right now today. Now we can get in a space capsule and we can go along 6,000 years from now. Now we come back to the environs of Sydney, Australia, and we dig down with our spade, and we come into contact with some of the rubble of what was left of Sydney. And lo and behold, we discover giant skyscrapers, subways, aircraft, automobiles, a glittering, dazzling, incredible civilization. And only a few miles away from Sydney, just a few miles away, in the same strata, at the same period of time, we discover an aboriginal village. And in that aboriginal village are Stone Age savages living with crude tools, using boomerangs and bow and arrows, having absolute rudimentary equipment, and feasting on kangaroo or wallaroos or wallabies or something of that nature, and hear the ashes of their fire and their funny-looking hieroglyphics and the red, red pigment that they have a habit of rubbing on their hands and little handprints on their caves and so on, show us a Stone Age civilization. Now, we would do just like the archaeologists have done today, and we would place that Stone Age civilization maybe millions of years, but certainly thousands of years before that modern, glittering, beautiful civilization that was Sydney, Australia. And that's exactly what the archaeologists do today. They don't seem to realize that some of the so-called Neanderthal men and cave dwellers of Europe, the Cro-Magnon men, the people up in England and other places who were savage, who literally did feast on other human beings, who were cannibals, who were degenerate with their hieroglyphs or their cave pictographs and so on, were nothing but the degenerate refuse, the outcasts of a civilization that might have been absolutely contemporaneous with a very developed civilization such as those in Babylonia or Greece or Rome or Egypt and so on. And they tend to put the one way back before the other. I want to go to look a little bit here about the family of Adam. Notice in chapter 4, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Interesting that she didn't say anything about Cain looking just like Adam and Eve. She said, I've gotten a man from the eternal. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the eternal. Why? Well, God was known to them. God walked and talked with them. God literally appeared to those people in human form. He must have told them something to do with an offering. The practice of giving God an offering, in this case, food, an offering as a portion of a person's crop, was something that Cain thought he ought to do. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock. Well, of all things. 
I thought that was of the Levitical priesthood. I thought the firstlings had to do with binding the money from that up to go to a place where God had set his name for the Feast of Tabernacles. What is this clear? In the Garden of Eden, just outside of it, in the land of Nod, to the east of Eden, after the family got cast out, and they're out there tilling the ground and raising sheep and cattle, domesticating, of course, these animals. They were domestic anyway, because even the lions were eating grass, and so were the leopards and all the rest of them at that time. And the firstlings were dedicated to God. And the Eternal had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Well, then animal sacrifices were known as being necessary while the first human sinner was still walking the earth and were not brought in with the Levitical priesthood at all. But God Almighty revealed that to Adam and to his family, that it foreshadowed a human sacrifice eventually, and that without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sin. But to Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Eternal said unto Cain, Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, and here's another little mistranslation you need to understand, shall it not be accepted, or shouldn't it be offered up? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and of course the first murder resulted as a matter of jealousy because of God's alleged favoritism. When you go through the, New, the Old Testament, even prior to the time of the flood, and you notice clean and unclean animals, notice, in the seven pair as opposed to the one pair that were taken into the ark. Did that originate with the Levitical priesthood? The Ten Commandments are known. You can go through beginning here and all the way to the 20th chapter, but excluding it to the 19th chapter, and you can prove in case after case for example, one of the pharaohs who knew that adultery would bring upon the penalty of death in the case of even Abraham and Sarah, and said it, this great sin that you brought upon me, the men of Sodom, it says, were sinners exceedingly before the eternal. When was Sodom destroyed? Knowledge was revealed to Adam and to the progeny of Adam, to Abel. It was revealed that the firstlings and an animal sacrifice were necessary, and a great deal more besides. We have here a little tiny keyhole glimpse into one-sixth of all of human history in the first five chapters up till the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis until today. There's a very interesting point, and I want to keep my place here in the fourth and fifth chapters of Genesis and go back to the book of Jude just one moment to show you something about the way God preserved the knowledge of his word. It didn't require Moses to sit on a stump some night and just have an inspiration while looking up at the stars and having his hand move automatically and then look the next morning, well, lo and behold, look what I've written. I've written here an account of how the Garden of Eden happened and, and how Cain killed Abel and how all of this occurred. No, I believe other people who were there, who lived it, who had a hand in it, helped write the Bible. Their names aren't on the documents, but I think they had a hand in it. In the book of Jude, it says... Verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all their ungodly among all of their ungodly deeds, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. End of quote. Then Jude continues, These are murmurers, etc. Now there's Enoch. And Enoch lived before Noah, and he is quoted in the New Testament of your Bible as being one of the Bible writers. What happened to the rest of Enoch's book? 
there is a book called the book of Enoch. And in that book is this quotation. The New Testament writer, Jude, who is the brother of Jesus Christ, singles out that one quotation and under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit puts the Holy Spirit's stamp of approval on that one segment. Does it mean you should never read the book of Enoch? No, of course not. But it's not on a par with Scripture. There are other writings, apocryphal writings, so-called lost books of the Bible, fragments of documents which are not a part of what we call the canon of either the Old or the New Testament. They might be very interesting reading. The Anti-Nicene Fathers are very interesting reading. I have a complete set of them in my home, and I've read them from time to time. And what some of these men saw, what they said, what they felt, what they thought, what they did, their arguments of doctrine and some of the writings even of a student of John, his name was Polycarp, are extant. You can read his letters, his arguments with other people. It's quite interesting because he lives so close to the time of Jesus Christ. But the sanction of Scripture is not placed upon that. Now, why does it call Enoch the seventh from Adam? Let's go back and look, if we will, again in the book of Genesis. It says, chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of the generations, or the scroll, of the generations of Adam. And then comes a genealogical tablet. One more of those eleven separate documents. Where did they come from? Who compiled them? Who kept the records? How did they come into Moses' possession? In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam. Not Mr. and Mrs. Adam, but Adam. Interesting. In the day when they were created, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. That language is interesting, isn't it? It does not say in chapter 4 and verse 1 that they begat a son in their own likeness after their own image. But it does say that Abel was a person who knew about the sacrifices, the firstlings that offered a sacrifice, and Cain, his brother, was very jealous. Now, Abel was killed, Cain is sent out, and a mark was placed upon him, and a threat which stated that if anyone killed him seven times, vengeance would be taken upon him. Mahalil came along and said, if anybody kills, or Lamech rather, you listen to me, wives, if anybody kills Cain, then seventy times seven, vengeance I will take. I'm even greater and stronger than he was, and so on. I happen to believe, this is just, maybe you can call it a theory of mine, and I believe this because modern science has discovered that every little baby girl that is born contains already in her body every ovum that will ever be ovulated in her entire lifetime. It isn't like in a male body created from month to month by the the manufacturing process of the body, but it's already there. Now that discovery of science, that in the little tiny ovary of a newborn baby girl is the not just potential, but the actual potential ovulation of each cycle that God has set in the body and the potential of her entire motherhood of the children that she will bear put something into my head. That must mean that Mother Eve of the human race was created with the capacity for all of the colors, all of the sizes, shapes, and strains racially of the human race. And that this abominable doctrine that a lot of racist bigots have come up with that black people are black because of a mark that was put upon Cain, 
Or maybe they are the Kenites, and there's a theory about these Kenites and how they're all tied in with the Jews and a big conspiracy and all of this today, that they're people of Satan the devil. They're wandering around and they're kind of like half spirit and half man or something. You would not believe the absolute trash in literature that you can read over why some people feel there are black human beings on the face of this earth. They will go down to after the flood and talk about Ham and then talk about the horrible sin that occurred after the time of Noah when he planted the vineyard and got drunk. And that's the reason they were all turned black, that the dark, swarthy people of the American continent are part of a half-tribe or something, aren't they, of the, the white people, but they, they got dark because of sin or something. Now, don't quote me, but somebody has tried to tell me a little bit about Mormon doctrine, but there's something with regard to some evil they did, and so people associate that with sin. No, I believe this is significant, that very likely all of the color strains were there. If I were to look at it and try to just look at all that I can see from the mind of God in the Bible and from God's own attitude, I would say that Adam and Eve were probably Mediterranean types. That is, they were not very light and very blonde. They weren't very dark and very swarthy. They were just an average, uh, maybe slightly olive-complected pair of people. And I think that the very first child was a very dark child. And they were astonished. And Eve only says, chapter 4, verse 1, it's a boy. I've gotten a man from the Lord. But that's all she said. Why was Cain so jealous of Abel? Was Abel more like his parents? And was Cain different? And did they begin to feel different? Now, when you look at chapter 5 and it says, Seth was born and he was born in the likeness after his image of Adam. That's an interesting point to me. Verse 3, chapter 5 of Genesis. Seth comes along, and he is reckoned in this genealogical table. Verse 4, the days of Adam, after he begotten Seth for 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. Now, if you'd like to do an experiment the way we did in our second year Bible class sometime, you can take the number of years required here, 500 years, the building of a city, for example, and you can take the two original couples, and then you can just say, well, just take an arbitrary 25. Let's assume that instead of getting married and having children about 13, 14, 15, or 16, the way many uh, families of humankind have done in some of the African, Central, and South American nations, and probably the way these people did, let's really be arbitrary and say that they never had their first child till they were 25. You'd be amazed, just like you'd be amazed with a little calculator, of deciding whether you would like one penny doubled every day for 30 days or one million dollars. Which would you like first? You'll probably pick the million dollars, but you would be wrong. You would make more money by picking the penny doubled every day for 30 days. Now, if you would go through that exercise, you would find there could have been something like 400 million human beings on the earth before the first 500 years or so went by. People want to know, well, where did Cain get his wife? Did Adam have a navel? Is this really true? Is this really the word of God, or is it ancient pagan mythology? I believe Adam had a navel. Would you like to know why I believe that? Because I believe that every son or daughter that has been born since Adam had a navel, and I believe that the entire apparatus just inside that navel which originally was created as a method through the umbilical of feeding directly into the stomach and the vital organs of a baby as it was born, 
though they were sealed off and not necessary, was there at the creation of Adam, so that Adam didn't just have a smooth belly. He had a little dimple in there, a little navel in there, just like you do. Maybe even had some lint in it after God gave him that animal skin. I don't know. But I do believe that Adam had a navel. People have actually just turned their back on God and have not wanted to read the Word of God, not wanted to believe in the Bible, because they really can't fathom whether or not Adam had a navel. It's an important question to some people. Other people give up and will not believe in the Word of God because they just cannot understand how Cain could find a wife. And other people say, aha, that's proof that there were these people who thought they were created of God, but they weren't really. It's just an evolutionary process. There are a lot of old pagan heathen people running around in animal skins, and they just began telling this story. But finally they discovered there were some other people over there, and Cain married a girl from these other people. They want to have evolution, not believe what the Bible really says, and look upon this as the holy word of God, taking it literal, beginning with the attitude of faith, and then when you have a difficulty, a contextual difficulty or some apparent contradiction or something, you begin with the faith to know that it's God's word and it's true and it's right. Now, my problem is, why don't I understand it quite correctly? Not, oh, it can't be right and I know that I'm right and it's wrong, but I know that I'm wrong and the Bible is right. It's a matter of an approach. And by the way, I will continue to say, I hope all of my life, and if I ever say otherwise, then certainly... Take a good, long, careful look at me, peek around and find out whether Christ is still out in front of me, and don't follow me. If I start telling you, don't prove all things, you're not to look into doctrine any further. I've always said, if you can prove a doctrine once, you can prove a doctrine twice, and you can prove it three times, and five times, and twenty times. Now, I agree with my father that it's not necessary, once we have proved and proved and proved the Sabbath, for example, to go back five or six times a year, almost as if we're really worried about it, and say, well, now, was I really right? I mean, i got to prove that again. It's one thing to be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us and to prove it to other people, and it's another thing to doubt whether or not we ever proved it to ourselves. But we can resubstantiate it, we can re-corroborate it, we can prove it to other people by looking up the scriptures and expounding them, and then doesn't that add to our own conviction? Each time we prove it, each time we teach it to somebody else, doesn't it just reconvict us all over again of the absolute authenticity of what we believe? Can we ever be the kind of people to whom the ministry is going to say, it's dangerous for you to look into doctrine any further. You just sit out there and let me spoon-feed you the doctrine you need. I know what's good for you, and I'll tell you what to believe. And you look where I tell you to look, and don't you look any further than that. That is not the way we see them doing it in the Word of God. So, I want to just make a point here without belaboring the issue. We can go down the line and we can count them through the scriptures, but let me hurry along and do it for you because it would take you a long time to pick it out of the fifth chapter. You will see there was Cain, then there was Abel. If you want to put them down, count them. That's two. Seth was three. Enos, four. Cainan is five. Mahalaleel is six. Jared is seven. And Enoch is eight. Hold it. What happened? Was Enoch really the seventh from Adam? No, he was not. He was the eighth. Actually, nine if you include Adam. Now, where's our difficulty? Our difficulty is the question, seventh from what? Seventh what? Seventh firstborn? Oh, no, absolutely not. Cain was the firstborn, wasn't he? Abel was the secondborn, wasn't he? 
Now my question, it said, chapter 5, Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. Is that proof that Seth was the third boy? The answer is no. There could have been several girls and several other boys, none of whom really was begotten in his image. But Seth came along, and Seth qualifies to be placed in this genealogical table because first he was in the image of Adam, but perhaps for another reason that I want to bring out. Now, we've proved absolutely that Seth is not the firstborn son of Adam. Now, notice a little later. Seth lived, verse 4. No, Adam did, 800 years, and begat sons and daughters. They could have had literally hundreds of children. And all the days that Adam lived were 930, and he died. Now, Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. What was he doing with the first 99 years? Did he marry at age 25, or did he go all that period of time and finally get to the point at about 105 that we reach at about 17 and discover the female sex and say, boy, that's nice. I would like to have one of those. Or did he get married maybe at about 25 or 30 or so and have a whole flock of kids by this time? And now along comes a son whose name is Enos, and Enos is singled out for a specific reason. Is this only a father firstborn? No, we've absolutely proved that in the case of Adam because Seth replaces Abel because Abel is dead and Cain has been thrown away and we can prove that he was at least the third and he might have been the fifth or the twentieth or the twenty-fifth. The same thing applies all the way down through. Now notice verse 28, Lamech lived 180 and two years and he begat a son. Something mysterious was said about Lamech's little baby boy. He called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the eternal is cursed. What in the world does that mean? That has something to do with a prophecy that Noah was going to comfort us, we of this lineage, us, we, my father and his father and all of those leading back before him, many of whom were still alive. Many of these men were contemporaneous. Methuselah probably drowned in the flood. And Methuselah and Adam's lives overlapped by a lot of time. These patriarchs knew each other quite well. It doesn't say they died, and then their son came along, and he died, and then his son came along. Their lives overlapped. Now, what is this concerning their work and the labor of their hands because of the ground which the Eternal has cursed? Lamech lived, after he begat Noah, 595 years and begat sons and daughters. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem and Ham and Japheth. Now, the tables of nations in the tenth chapter of Genesis begin to list all the children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and you begin to see the earth peopled again after the time of the flood. When it says, Enoch was not found... When the Apostle Paul talks about Enoch being taken to a place of safety, many people feel that Enoch was spirited away to heaven. The truth is he was taken to a place of protection somewhere, and as Paul said, was not found. As I brought out many times, what do you mean was not found? Well, he was not found because someone was looking for him. And who was looking for him? The world was divided in the time before the flood, even more so, and in one way, in a very similar way as it is today. There was a tiny handful 
of human beings who preserved and maintained the knowledge that was given to Abel. They were named Seth and Enos and Cainan and Mahalaleel and Jared and Enoch and, and Moses, I should say Noah, excuse me, later on these patriarchs. They were preserving the knowledge of God's Sabbath day, the knowledge of an animal sacrifice, the knowledge, if you will, even of tithing, because the giving of firstlings is a form of tithing, not based upon 10%, but based upon the principle of the firstlings. They were keeping that knowledge and preserving that information, that God is up there and I'm down here, and there's a great need for a sacrifice to atone for sin. We need to repent of sin. We need to keep God's Ten Commandments. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. God's word is harmonious. And it says in Psalm 119, 172, all thy commandments are righteousness. Noah was a preacher of the laws of God, the way of God, the government of God, and the coming kingdom of God. Did you see, did you notice what we read in the book of Jude, that Enoch, one of these ancient patriarchs of that lineage of patriarchs, called the seventh, seventh what? Not seventh firstborn son of firstborn sons at all. Seventh something, seventh what? I would say seventh prophet. I would say seventh patriarch, seventh apostle or, or minister or whatever you would say. I think prophet is the best term. Seventh prophet, seventh man of God. And there were no other men of God. Each one of these individuals superseding the other and picking up the knowledge of God and retaining the information that is contained to me in the book of Genesis and even preserving the very word of God one generation after another because all the other people were of Satan the devil. There was cannibalism, rape, robbery, murder, everything that was evil and it was wrong. You begin to look in the sixth chapter and it talks about gigantism. It talks about people intermarrying and the marriages were not right, and that's very clear in the sixth chapter, but it shows that in Noah's case, they were. Now, here's what, again, you don't have to believe this. It's something that I believe. I believe it in my own heart and mind. It's, it's purely academic. It doesn't change anything. You don't have to believe it. I don't believe that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all white men and that they married wives of a different color. And that that's where the races came from. Sorry, I just don't. Because I don't believe that those races are named after the woman who is not even identified. I believe they're named after the man. And because I have seen, and I believe that to me at least it's proved, it's something I believe, that the capacity for two white people, if you will, we're not really white, but you know what I mean, Caucasian, if you want to call them that, from the Caucasus of the Mediterranean area, had the capacity to have children of different color hues that Noah and his wife were white. I think they had a son who was black, they had a son who was yellowish, and they had a son who was Caucasian or white. That white or Caucasian son, slightly dark, maybe a slightly olive, was, was named Shem. The son who was black was named Ham. And the son who was yellow was named Japheth. And to this day, Javan, you can look into the genealogy and the tables of nations in the 10th chapter, and you can read about the sons of Japheth, and who are they? Gomer, Magog, Madai, and Javan, and Tubal. Now, to me, you look at some of those ancient names still on modern maps, the island of Java, the Japanese, J-A-P-A-N, the same letters are there, 
And here are the same peoples, the yellowish peoples of the world, of which there are dozens of sub-tribes and races and so on, dating all the way back to this time. I think that when it says he was perfect in his generations, it does not mean that he was perfect in his gen engenderings, or trying to tell you he was perfect in the sense that he didn't intermarry racially, but that wasn't the important point. That many people were intermarrying, if you will, racially at that time. And that that was not that big an issue anymore than it was a big issue in Moses' life, who married a black woman and Aaron, remember, and uh, let's see, Miriam, were actually put outside the camp and were given, if you recall, leprosy for daring to chide Moses over having taken an Ethiopian woman. Read it very carefully. I think that people make an awful lot more out of that than maybe they should. But at least it's very interesting when you look into the statement that Lamech, I'm sorry, that Enoch made that is quoted in the book of Jude. And what is that message? Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to judge them that are sinners. Here is a biblical New Testament quotation from one of these patriarchs before the flood about the coming, the second coming, if you will, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And to me, it's just a fascinating fact that here is one little segment of a book that Enoch wrote. Now we come down to a point that I'm trying to make something out of, and I hope I'm not boring you half to death. I can prove Enoch wrote. And I can prove that Enoch was one of those seven patriarchs, and that Enoch predated Noah. Now, I want to know what happened to that document that Enoch wrote. Well, I can see Noah, and only Noah and his family, and Enoch's not there, he's dead, in that ark. Yet by the time we're down in the New Testament, some old musty scroll in some synagogue, and some little wizened scroll keeper trots it out, and here is a man who is the brother of Jesus Christ of Nazareth named Jude who had access to the document and could read it and could know what it said and could actually put it down in a letter that he wrote to some people in the church and it's preserved for us today so you have a little scrap of something that Enoch wrote way before the flood. If Enoch wrote, then I say Mahalaleel wrote, and Jared did, and probably Seth did, and probably so did Adam. And I feel, because that's just something that I've gone over in times past in teaching the class and going through a lot of these Bible books, some of the handbooks and so on, that the idea that Moses couldn't have written because writing was not invented yet is one of the stupidest and most shallow excuses you've ever heard. Now, once that excuse was shattered by the discovery of the Tel Alamarna tablets and other discoveries, then they reverted to another excuse. Well, he must have borrowed all of this from pagan mythology, mythology rather, and from things that other people wrote. No, no way. The patriarchal leaders who preserved the knowledge of God, which was called by the father of Noah, our work, as well as, as the toil of our hands. That's not redundant. Not our work, comma, the toil of our hands. Our work and the toil of our hands, they had a work that they were doing. Noah did that work not only by the physical manifestation of building the ark, but also by the fact that he was a minister, a preacher, a prophet, if you will, who told people plainly what the consequences of sin was doing to the entirety of the earth. The whole earth was going to be overflown with the flood, and only a handful were going to escape. And how successful was he? He absolutely was totally unsuccessful. His own family was the only group of people who went with him in the ark. And I won't comment further on that or I'd get off the subject. So, 
If you go back and you realize that first fruits were known, tithing was known, animal sacrifices, did you notice when we read that scripture it said including the fat? Even there in the, the family of Adam, not only the animal but the fat, just like in the Levite period of time when the fat was burnt in the morning and evening offering. Very interesting to know that patriarchal leaders who preserved the knowledge of God were performing a work for centuries even before the flood and had to do with writing and preserving a part of the Bible, the Word of God. Now when I go back and I look at the pioneers that came west, some of them from Central Europe and other countries and so on, along with them came the old family Bible and old parchments and old charts and sometimes genealogical tables and things of this nature because all of us are creatures of habit. In our case, the one member of my family who has done the most to save some of the things of the family is my sister Dottie. And uh, she has gotten pictures and letters and things from others of the family. And she just got boxes of old family records. I don't have any. She's got them all. So if I want to find out about the family, I have to go to Dottie to find out. And for some reason, she, and she alone of all the children, has wanted to preserve that. I've been reading a diary of Rommel called The Fox, or what, The Trail of the Fox, the thick book, you may have seen it. He wrote every single day, and sometimes two and three times a day, just scribbling it real quickly, a little note sometimes, and sometimes lengthy letters, every day for years, compiling, I mean, making thousands of letters, Erwin Rommel wrote to his wife up in Thuringia during the war. The guy who wrote the book got access from both the museums where some of the Allies had locked them up, from microfilm in Washington, and more importantly from Mrs. Rommel, who is still alive, thousands of those letters. You talk about an accurate picture. What could be more accurate than the letters written right on the battlefield from the tent, from the tank while they're rocking along, what's happening all around them and so on, to give a day-by-day, hour-by-hour account of this man's life. Patton kept a diary. Eisenhower kept a diary. Most presidents keep a diary. Nixon wanted to go so far that he wanted to keep the best diary of all and wanted to tape record every conversation in the Oval Office and every telephone call, and it was his downfall. He wanted to keep a diary so thoroughly. People do that. They keep records. They keep diaries about what happened. I think Adam did. I think some of these leaders of the patriarchs did back in those days, and I believe that's where some of our Bible came from. Now, the Bible merely means biblos. That's in the Greek, and it means books. When you say holy books, the books were opened. We know that in Revelation 20th chapter, that that means the books that are opened in Judgment Day are the books of the Bible. Scriptures is a Latin word that merely means writings. There are four separate compilations of material that form our Bible. They are the Hebrew manuscripts. A manuscript merely means manu, hand, script, written, handwritten. Handwritten manuscripts of the Old Testament. And the earliest of those Hebrew manuscripts dates to the 8th century of our Christian era. They're the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And the earliest of those go back to only the 4th century. That's 100 years after Constantine of the Christian era. The Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament that I believe Jesus looked upon that he actually read, and from which, since the quotations are so similar in the Greek and the New Testament, I think he quoted. Which is why in some cases you see the names of the prophets like Jeremy or Isaiah, instead of Isaiah or Jeremiah, are slightly different, and so are some of the quotations from Peter and others when they're re referring back to the Old Testament. You know why? Because I think they were quoting from what is called the Septuagint, and Septuagint really means 70. 
It's in Roman numerals. If you look in a commentary and it says LXX, that means that their reference for their authority is the 70. Now, the 70 meant 70 scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, who way, way back, even before Jesus Christ, 227 years before Christ, translated the known Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. Now, I'm going to tell you what I feel is the importance of that. There is very strong indication that Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. It contains the books in the same order as does the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles being the last book of the Old Testament. Jesus talks about the law, the writings, and the Psalms. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms are the writings. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. It is stated that way. The three divisions of the Old Testament are the law, the first five books, the prophets, the major and the minor, and the writings are the Psalms. Included in that would be First and Second Chronicles, a recapitulation of the kings at the close of the Bible. Now, when Jesus says, from the blood of, Ab of, of uh, Abel until the blood of Zacharias, whom you slew between the ports and the altar, remember that statement in Matthew 23, from one murder to another murder. It's interesting, you look in Second Chronicles, and you find late in that book, the murder of Zacharias. He is saying from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. Now, here is Jesus apparently quoting from the Septuagint, and we've still got copies of it. The most ancient manuscript existing in the world today is the Septuagint, if you're talking about the Bible, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament translated 277 B.C. Here is Jesus apparently freely quoting from it, having access to it as the disciples, reading it, but taking no exception with it, neither with the origin of the books, nor with what is contained within the books, nor with the manner of translating or preservation. Let me tell you how that was done. When they translated and they copied, they had to actually intone each letter with several other scribes sitting around. They had numerical value as well as understanding. They had to clearly pronounce them and the others nod and agree. Then the man would put down that character. Each time they came to the name of God, they had to get up and every one of them wash their clothing and their bodies and clean their pen. Then they would go over the copies. If they had six or eight or ten of them and one major copyist and a reader over there, and the copies were gone over by several editors. And they not only read, but they counted. They not only counted the number of words, but they counted the number of letters, and then they counted each individual letter because each individual letter would have to appear on one page of clean animal skin, could only be a clean animal, of the beautiful, whitest, finest material, so many times. If that letter occurred more times than it was supposed to, they tore up the whole page, tore up the whole skin, and the man started over again. It was the most meticulous method possible, more meticulous than is used by modern typesetters and proofreaders today. It is far easier for a mistake to creep into, in some ways, the actual printing, and there are a few, in the printing of a Bible today than it was, because you're still dealing with human beings. Sure, there's a machine that prints it. But a human being typeset it, a human being rough drafted out, proofread it, made the proofreader's marks, another human being cleaned up the copy, someone else set the type, and then a printer took the type, and he could even spill type or lose type or jumble type or turn it around and put it in there and printed it. It's still done by the hand of man. 
There's nothing any more sacred about this printed version than there is about those ancient old manuscripts on vellum. Now, the four oldest ones that we have, three oldest ones without getting into the Ephraim IR, the Codex Vaticanus. I've had the privilege of seeing that one. No, I'm sorry, I have not. I did not see the Vaticanus. I've seen the copies of it in the Ambassador College Library. I have seen both the Sinaiticus and the Alexandrinus, and so has my wife that she may have forgotten. I think you remember that under glass, huge big books like this, not books so much as just big parchments, in the British Museum. And it was so exciting to go in there and to actually see the original vellum. Here in, the reason they call this one the Alexandrinus is because it was over at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, and I think then it got into Alexandria, Alexandria Egypt before it was finally purchased for something like 700,000 pounds, I forget, by the British government, an enormous amount of money by the British government, and put in the British Museum, where it still is today. But those crazy monks in that monastery were, were binding this stuff. Some traveler went there, you have to read the story, and found some of these old parchments being used to bind up boxes, and here were stacks and stacks and stacks of them, just old animal hides, they thought, with beautiful hand-lettered writing on it, and they were burning it for fuel. So in that one particular case, certain portions are missing, but they were the, the New Testament in the Sinaitic text is the best of all, because not one word of the New Testament is missing. It is all there. In the Vaticanus, and it's only called that because the Vatican Library bought it, the Catholics didn't write it, but it's in the, the Vatican Library, part of the Psalms and part of the New Testament are missing. And in the Alexandrinus that I mentioned, ten leaves are missing out of the Old Testament, and that dates back to the 5th century. Turn now to Second Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. Peter says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. First of all, he is talking about prophecies, meaning the Old Testament, the only prophecies that were extant at that time. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired of God and they spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now think about these things I want to throw in right quickly. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote unto you in a letter not to company with fornicators, but not in altogether the fornicators of this world, etc., or you would need to go out of the world. Showing that 1 Corinthians is not... 1 Corinthians. It may be 2nd or 3rd or 4th or umpteenth, but there was some other previous letter written, wasn't there? So there is a lot of New Testament literature that isn't a part of the Bible. We already read what Enoch said in the book of Jude. Let's notice Colossians for a moment, the 4th chapter, verses 13 and 18. Colossians 4, 13 and 18. The Apostle Paul is urging them to read this letter, pass it around, and also to read another one. I'll just get right to this one. Salute the brethren in Laodicea, verse 15, and emphasis in the church in his house. And when this epistle to Colossae is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. What happened to that? That isn't contained in Scripture, but it was written. It probably was mostly accurate. There might have been some little part of it that wasn't necessary for our Bible, but it was certainly there, and it was written. In 2 Timothy 10 and verse 14... There's a little bit of insight into Paul's concern over some of these records that he was keeping. 2 Timothy 4 and verse... Well, let me take a look. 
10 and verse 14 of the fourth chapter. Yeah, 2 Timothy 4, 10 through 14. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring with you, and the books, but especially the parchments. Books and parchments. The Apostle Paul, wanting to collect some writing materials, he had left behind, because right now he is apparently in Rome. This is when he was brought before Nero for the very second time, and now he knew that the time of his departure was near. I want you to notice Galatians now, 4 and verse 15. Galatians 4 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul said, Where is this blessedness you spoke of? I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them unto me. 4.15, You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them unto me. Now notice Galatians 6 and verse 11. You see how with large letters, this is not a large letter, it's a little short letter compared to Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and some of the others. No, the original says in the margin, you see how with a large letter, large letters, I have written unto you with mine own hand. Why? Because it was an important letter. He was setting them straight. He said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who have called you and so on into another gospel. Those were the problems the Apostle Paul had. They're the problems that we've got. They're the problems of today. Some other teacher will come in, and very quickly a group of amateurs will sit around. They are not scholars. They do not have the tools of research. They don't even know where to look, let alone how. And they will just swallow what someone says. Now, Paul had to write, Do not be soon deceived either by word or by letter from us that the day of Christ is at hand. Remember that? So he was afraid that there would be spurious letters sent out. But you see, these people had protection. The Apostle Paul had lived among them, and they'd seen his writing, and they knew that he had an eye problem. Why would he say, pluck out your own eyes and give them to me? He must have had some sort of horrible astigmatism, or maybe he even had some growth of some sort, and he had to get down real close and use great big letters. So he said, you see how with large letters I've written this to you in my own hand, so they would know it was genuine and official, and they could then believe in that book. So, I think, as I look over the entirety of the Bible, it's no problem to me that Baruch wrote the book of Jeremiah, that King Cyrus is quoted and exalting God in the decree of sending the people back to Jerusalem, that Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter of the Bible, that an archangel wrote the longest prophecy in the Bible, or even that Lemuel's mother is cited in the Bible as being a very fine woman. The Word of God, the Bible, has been preserved, transmitted, translated, Printed, began in 1450 A.D. at the Gutenberg Bible when, when printing was finally invented, and has come down to us today. I know that I have a complete Old Testament based upon what I told you about very obvious quotations, at least to me they are, from Jesus, from the Septuagint, and looking at the Septuagint, so I reject the additional books of the Catholic Bible called the secret books books that talk about chasing a demon away by the smell of a cooking fish just do not set real well with me. But they are there. You can read them. There's interest there. There's historical interest there. And I think that perhaps you should read them at some time if you wish. They're not a part of inspired writ any more than the lost book of the Bible, the Oaspe, and some of these other oriental texts may be. But I believe that when you study 
And read some of the good books on that. There's one, I forget the title in English, it's Si la Biblia tenía razón. What is that? Yes, the Bible has reason. Yes, the Bible makes sense. A big, thick book. I've forgotten the English, the exact English of that. I can't trans translate it loosely. I can only transliterate it. Uh, there's the one, the uh, Bible, an ancient Bible light by Dorothy Ruth Miller, I believe it is. There's the Handbook of the Bible by Angus. There's the Halley's Bible Handbook. If you don't have that in your own private library, that's a little thick blue book about this big, available in any gospel bookstore. shouldn't cost too much. You can read through the first few chapters of that. It talks about some of these stones, the Rosetta Stone, the Tel Alamarna Tablets, the Code of Hammurabi, and a little bit about the history of the Bible. The origin of the text, the transmission, the preservation, translation, the printing of the Bible, how it came down to us, and how it was that long before Moses, the patriarchs of God's word have been preserving the word and the knowledge of God even prior to the time of the flood. So I wanted to give you something a little different today, something maybe just a little bit more like a college classroom lecture than a sermon, but I hope it has put some little new thing into your minds that you haven't thought of before and that has proved to be profitable.